Hello and welcome to the Media Democracy Podcast, brought to you by the Media Fund. My name is Dan Hind, at Dan Hind on Twitter, and my co-host is Tom Mills, at TA underscore Mills on Twitter. We'll be here every Friday with a half hour of chat about media politics and media politics. Tom, would you like to say a little bit about the podcast and our plans for the next few weeks and months? Yeah, sure. So the idea here is that we're going to have regular um, discussions uh, around the politics and the media and the state of democracy, and we're going to be discussing the potential for democratisation of the media as well. Uh, we're going to be uh, be presented by Dan and myself, but we're hoping to have interviews with other people, and we would welcome feedback from all our listeners. So we're on Twitter. You can follow us uh, at Media Democrat. And um, provide us feedback there, ideas for shows, uh, things you'd like us to discuss. And um, yeah, well, let's get started. So on today's show, Tom and I will be talking about the, re- the recent UK general election and its immediate aftermath. The Conservatives' digital charter proposals that came in their manifesto. These are likely now to be dormant for the most part. But they tell us some interesting things about the politics of the media as we move into a digital age. And finally, we're going to talk about the BBC sign-in and its implications for the corporation's future. So, Tom, it's been a little over two weeks since the general election. This is no time for hot takes. But what strikes you as worth flagging up about the media's performance in the campaign and in its immediate aftermath? Yeah, so um, it was an extraordinary campaign, I mean, in a lot of ways. Uh, with, I guess the dust is sort of settling a bit. I'm still buzzing, but... Um, it's been two weeks, which is kind of amazing, isn't it? It doesn't feel like two weeks, but yeah. No, no, but at the same time, I almost can't remember what the world was like before the election. So it's, you know, it does really feel like, you know, a, a transformative moment um, for politics. And, that, I mean, there's so much we can talk about in terms of how this played out um, through, the, through the British media. Um, the most... The most obvious thing for those who were supportive of Corbyn and the Labour Party was the sort of, uh, you know, the, the performance of uh, the media in terms of, you know, Corbyn's naysayers, which included not just people on the right who were throwing muck at the Labour Party and Corbyn for years, but the people in The Guardian and to some extent in the BBC who were just, you know, had been denigrating the possibilities of a, of a Corbyn victory for two years. Uh, so I've, there's two elements, really, that in terms of the media's performance. Uh, one is uh, the, the apparent weakening of the, of the right-wing tabloids and their ability to um, swing an election one way or another, if indeed they ever had that power. And uh, two is the question of uh, why, why wasn't this anticipated also by, um, let's call them the liberal commentariat or, or the centre-left, who had spent... Um, a, a long time assuring us that the Labour Party was uh, tumbling off a cliff, essentially. Uh, so, yeah, the, these are the two things I think we'd want to talk about. And the Guardian did come out for Labour in the end, um, but this is, of course, in the context of uh, two years of quite strong um, criticism of the direction of the party, which turned out to be uh, what has turned out to have uh, reversed the electoral fortunes of the party. That's right. I, I think there is a sense in which, and I think this is something you, you explore very interestingly in the article that was published, I think, last week in the New Socialist, on the New Socialist website, 
looking at, as it were, the um, the community values of, of the liberal media, um, the sense that they were all part of a uh, uh, of the same community of knowledge in which it was obvious, um, self-evidently, the case that a far-left agenda would be electoral poison. Um, and by far-left, of course, they meant anything um, that was a whisker beyond uh, the kind of, uh, how should we put it, sort of, uh, you know, watery social democracy, um, or kind of, not even social democracy in a way, it was kind of sort of a sort of welfareism, really, um, a, a kind of um, capitalism with um, sympathetic characteristics um, that was pursued by the Labour Party from 97 onwards. Um, and anything that, that went beyond that was seen as being self-evidently um, self-harming for, uh, for the Labour Party and therefore um, you know, deeply morally irresponsible. Um, just to go back a bit, I think, and talk about media performance before um, the election results. The thing that really struck me when you, we compared Corbyn's media profile or media persona with that of Miliband, um, Brown and, and Kinnock before him was the sense that his message and his personality seemed to be coherent. He didn't seem to be someone who was pursuing a... Um, a, a set of policy prescriptions he didn't really believe in. He didn't seem to be temporising in a way. And that, I think, pa partly explains why he was so... Um, he was so able to generate this, this positive, unofficial media coverage. Um, <clears throat> the kind of pro-Corbyn meme machine had something to work with in a way they didn't really have to, with, with Miliband. Miliband seemed yeah. deeply uncomfortable with his own agenda... And I think this is a really important lesson for politicians, is that if you're serious about um, uh, releasing the energy of, uh, of, a, of a mass following, you have to actually believe what you say. And it seems like a really obvious yeah. point. But the Labour Party for a long time had got into this world where they would look at photos, focus groups and they would take the most kind of reactionary and ill-thought-through elements of what, whatever focus group they seemed to have um, convened and then try and turn that into a policy offering. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you, you could see it. I mean, it's not as obvious, actually, if, if, if your frame of reference is, is Blairism, because Blair was somebody who was completely comfortable and self-confident with, with a neoliberal and, in some ways, very reactionary political agenda. So Blair looked very comfortable in his own neoliberal skin in a way that um, someone like... Brown perhaps didn't for maybe personal reasons, but when it came to Ed Miliband, um, you know, he, he had to sort of, uh, he had this sort of curious mix of a kind of um, left social democracy with some sort of elements taken from the more reactionary um, elements of Blairism as well. And so, so part of that is the fact that he wasn't, he wasn't self-confident in, in putting across that politics. But then I think but if you go back to Kinnock, for example, you know, he goes through this sort of transformation from somebody who comes from the left and then they try to pursue this um, media-based strategy where we're going to put out messages based on, and Mandelson, of course, was a key sort of figure in all of this. We're going to, um, we're going to pursue media-type elections, aping the strategies of the Conservative Party at the time 
and that's going to be our electoral strategy. And I think you're absolutely right about about Corbyn and the basis of his, how comfortable he was with a different type of politics. But I think also the hostility of um, much of the media to the, the, the politics that Corbyn represents it also forced Corbyn and his supporters into a different sort of strategy. You know, they had to go try and go around the media in a way that Miliband, it wasn't completely obvious that um, that they needed to do that. So I, I think it's quite it's quite interesting because they didn't have the possibility to try and um, play to a certain media script in the, in the way that Miliband at least thought that he did anyway. Um, and so, yeah, they, it's, it, was, it was that process of, um, yeah, focus group-based presentational politics, which I think, you know, if you look at the, the basis of support for Corbyn, what most people have said, from both from his uh, initial victories in the Labour leadership election to the success, relative success in the recent general election, is that he seems to believe what he says, and, and he has a coherent sort of, vision for what kind of Britain he wants. You know, and that, it's interesting because that clearly has a sort of purchase with people, doesn't it? In a way that um, sort of focus groups, uh, you know, centrist politics doesn't seem to. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, will, I, not, I wouldn't want to be starry-eyed about it. I mean, obviously every, every um, leader is, is less wedded to some elements of his programme than others. Um, but what you didn't see in Corbyn was the spectacle of a man who seemed to be sort of like being sort of fatally compromised um, by uh, decisions that he'd made about what would, you know, the concessions that he felt he had to make to a certain kind of electoral realism. And again, you're right, I think that the contrast with Miliband is very interesting because I think a lot of people around Miliband in 2015 thought that they just had to play a defensive game um, and that they would therefore, and they would the, the election. The election was theirs for the taking, um, and that simply wasn't an option uh, for Corbyn. Um, they had to to pursue a very aggressive um, uh, approach because, they, they, in a sense, they had nothing to lose, and it was quite quite you know obvious that they, they had nothing to lose. So that kind of that sort of like foolish common sense that says don't you know don't make any mistakes. Um, you have, if you're going to do anything, you're going to make mistakes. And there were plenty of moments on the campaign trail where Corbyn uh, stumbled. He's not, you know, he's not a brilliant performer, and he was he was constantly being um, exposed to very critical media treatment. Um, but in a sense, the, the stumbles didn't really matter because um, the the enthusiasm that surrounded him created a persona for him um, as the boy. That made him kind of yeah. invulnerable, um, you know. I mean, you know, the, the the kind of you think of the the bacon sandwich test, and I know that Corbyn is a vegetarian, so he would never eat a bacon sandwich. But he could have eaten a bacon sandwich any which way he liked in the campaign, and the if response. If he had a falafel sandwich, I think the Labour right would have just um, had a breakfast. <laughs> well, I just think you know he could have you know he could have mishandled a sandwich to. At uh, the end of time, people would have still been like, "He's the boy, and uh, he's going to, um, he's going to be fine." Um, so, so I think that would be that was one of the that's one of the important things I think that came out of the the pre-election coverage for me was that, and it seems like a, a blindly obvious point, but as you say, with the exception of Blair, who was deeply comfortable um, 
with, uh, with a, what was essentially a, a right-wing agenda, I think, for the Labour Party. Um, Labour leaders have tended to have the look of, they have a sort of hunted look about them, um, because yeah. they seem to and be... I, and because, because they are hunted, you know. And I think the other thing is that, I mean, just coming back to this, this question of sort of media performance, I mean, a lot of these things got very mystified um, in the run-up to the election, uh, and, and this really annoyed me, but there was lots of discussions around sort of media savvy and competency and these sort of starry-eyed looking back to Blair and how he was able to um, handle himself in a presentational way, much more, apparently much more effectively than, than Corbyn. And I think this kind of had, has, the, this has the effect of depoliticizing the, the, the media environment. Part of the reason Blair was self-confident in that environment was that he had media support and he'd adopted agendas to which a lot of the media, the majority of the media, in fact, weren't hostile. Okay, so he was comfortable with that politics, but also he was operating within a political paradigm that was basically acceptable to the media establishment. Now, I think what happens, um, uh, one of the things that annoyed me about this question of sort of competence and media performance is that it implies that this is sort of a neutral territory in which anyone can operate and also that your, your ability to perform on the media is some sort of neutral characteristic that you possess, which doesn't actually include any sort of element of competency, or, sorry, not competency, confidence um, in the environment in which you're, which you're in. And you see the real transformation that happens with Corbyn is when he start, the Labour starts to go up in the polls and they realise that their strategy is actually cut, cutting through. Yeah. And then Corbyn looks, starts to look profoundly relaxed. Yeah. And I think what that tells you is that a lot of the things which are treated by liberal commentators as if they were um, the personal properties of the people involved are often reflections of the environments in which they're operating. So Theresa May, um, when she's standing in front of Downing Street with the full sort of symbolic power of the British state behind her, can seem a very commanding presence. But when she when she started to look shaky as the cam- their campaign started to crumble, um, they looked like very poor, actually looked like very poor media performers. And I think that shows you how, as you start to lose the agenda, as you start to lose your confidence, some of that stuff which we simply assume to be personal sort of properties of the, the performers um, reveals itself to be much more based in um, confidence and your ability to feel like you're shaping the political agenda or you're, or you're cutting through or whatever the other political cliches that you know, journalists use. That's really interesting. That's a very interesting point. And you're, you're absolutely right. We should try and get away from this sort of this technocratic notion of charisma, um, which, is, you know, which is a feature of Clintonian and, and, and New Labour um, politics. Um, your point about about uh, Corbyn's growing confidence as he sees his his strategy started to work is really interesting. There's been quite a lot of discussion about the impact of, um, as it were, you know, freelance m- meme makers on social media, um, and we've and and there's been a it's clearly it had an impact um, um, on voters on on um, the levels of support that we saw in the polls coming up to election. But I'm sure you're right that it probably gave a degree of confidence to um, Corbyn and his immediate team as well. If you think about the media environment 20 or 30 years ago, the only feedback you would have got would have been from the newspapers and the broadcasters. Whereas their team could see that they were actually inspiring people to, um, uh, to communicate and to communicate with them in very positive terms in real time. 
And I'm sure that that would have fed into his campaign and will be a factor in other campaigns going forward, I think. Robin um, did an interview with um, Jacobin, uh, I guess it must be a year ago or so, uh, which wasn't really picked up very much, but he talked about how one of the major elements of his success was the ability to circumvent the BBC and the Sun. And, to, and the, you know, that allowed you to build up um, a level of support outside of the media. So, like, Corbyn himself is obviously, um, first of all, is used to having to uh, face media hostility, but also is sort of attuned to the possibilities of, of working around it. And I think as that strategy, yes, as you say, starts, started to sort of play out, and you could see that actually there was, um, let's say, a discussion going on outside of those uh, quasi-official channels of um, the media and the BBC. It must have made a difference. Before we, we've sort of been circling around this issue of, uh, well, what I guess is the most obvious question about this election, which is, do people who talk about politics for a living in the media understand politics? Which was the central sort of question of that um, article I wrote for the new socialist. If people want to read it, we we tweet it from our um, from our account. Um, well, this is, and I think this also this brings us to the issue of the of the mayor culpers, doesn't it? So after the election, a lot a lot of commentators said, "Oh, look, I was wrong, and and I feel I feel terrible about it, and I'll do better in future." But there is a really important question: is like, well, if you're serious about not being wrong in the future, like. What would what what would they need to be doing in the future in order to start to understand politics, right? Because it's clear yeah. that they don't in uh, on one level, in that they think that the conversation that happens in newspaper offices, in the editorial departments of the broadcasters, and in Parliament and its kind of satellite institutions, they thought that politics was was what happened in those conversations, right? Yeah. And they thought that politics was like, who's up and who's down? Um, who's got the ear of who? So it's very kind of courtly politics. And again, I think you're, you know, to go back to this issue of charisma and performance and media savvy, it was very much about like, who's credible? Like, who, you know, who can, who can face up to John Humphreys on the Today programme? Or like, who can go toe to toe with Andrew Neil and so on, right? So there was a whole set of kind of, uh, of criteria of judgment, judging politics, which were internal to this, uh, these kind of these co- this collection of courts, if you like, and it turns out that politics is happening in in the country. Like it turns out that there is actually a politics that happens where people live and where they work and and how they communicate with one another. Well, it's just a strange thing, isn't it? It's that you know political commentators don't actually most of them don't do much reporting, so. You know, who are the best journalists, for example, at The Guardian? It's people like Adita Chakrabarti, who who don't spend their time doing political commentary, who actually try and get a sense of what's going on in British society and then come back to politics on that basis, right? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's, the question, it's all very well saying, I was wrong about politics, but then you need to explain why you're wrong and what you're going to do different, right? So when people were throwing shit at the pollsters after 2015... You know, they said, "Okay, well, we got all the weighting wrong, so we're going to address our methodology." And they all got, um, so they all, you know, bashed their heads together and said, "Okay, well, we're going to have to try and figure out how we do this." And some of them weighted them one way, some of them weighted another. Okay, well, let's not get into a massive conversation about the pollsters, but at least they were trying to go back to their methodology and try and figure out how they can better understand what's going on in electoral politics. 
Well, the, you know, these liberal commentators and I guess conservative commentators, you know, I don't read as much. I don't think they've got nothing worth saying. Is that they need to they need to actually figure out why they got it wrong, as you said. You know, it's all very well saying I got it wrong, now I'm going to get it right. But it's like, well, what are, what is your new capacity that you're going to bring to the table to get it right? Rather than saying, I'm sorry I got it wrong, I'm definitely going to try harder next time. And, you know, I don't want to denigrate, like, the the uh, analytical skills of the Polly Toynbees and Jonathan Freelands of this world again. But, like, you know, if they if they are going to understand politics, that then they're going to need to get a sense of why they were wrong. And I've not, I've not seen that in many of the the mere culprits. You know, I've not, I've not seen them explain why they didn't see this coming and how they're going to see other things coming. I think it's also worth us saying though that what we're not necessarily expecting from these um, commentators is for them to accurately predict what's going to happen in the future. Because obviously there were a lot of people saying, "Oh my God, we didn't see this outcome." You know, we didn't. But this isn't really about being able to anticipate a particular um, electoral arithmetic playing out. I mean, my beef with these people is less that they didn't see the electoral outcome, which, to be fair, people who were supportive of the Corbyn project, like myself, um, although I was telling people that, you know, if we could decrease in their majority would be a win, oh, my God, it'd be great if we got a hump parliament. Most people weren't, weren't or didn't dare hope for that kind of outcome. Sure, The question sure. is less, did they see that coming, than... Were they serious about um, understanding the trajectory of, of politics over the last um, two years or even over the last decade? I mean, then the answer has to be no. And the answer, and the question, which I hope we're going to get to grips with uh, in this podcast, is um, you know how could they do that better? How could our how could our media service better? Right, right. And I think this, uh, as you say, the kind of the there was an interesting moment a couple of years ago where there was a poll which revealed that there were very, very high levels of misunderstanding in the general public about things like, you know, uh, the extent of benefit fraud, um, how the benefits bill breaks down, um, how many immigrants there are in the country and so on. Um, and Martha Carney was on The World at One and she, she, had a, she had a feature on this poll and there was a brief discussion of it and she said... Well, we'll just have to try harder in the future um, to inform people. And the idea is that somehow you can keep doing what you're doing, but do it more strenuously or with more vigour, and somehow that will make it better. And no amount of knowing what, what's going on in Westminster um, and its uh, auxiliary institutions, no amount of... of uh, talking to the great and the good in, 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 in that milieu will actually make you better at understanding what's going on in politics in the country. Um, yeah. There is a sense, as you say, that there's something just there's just something wrong uh, with the way that they, they have conceived of their job. Um, there is something going on elsewhere. Um, and if you're reliant on other people in your community of knowledge to explain what happened elsewhere... Um, you end up with a, a discourse which I think becomes increasingly removed from reality. And I think, you know, this we could, we could go back to, to, to a number of events, but if you look at the, the impact of the financial crisis on political reporting, um, as you say, someone like Adita Chakrabarti's great virtue is that he's aware that we live in, we live in a post-crisis economy. 
Um, he understands that something profound changed in 2007-2008. Um, not just in the way that the economy was functioning, but in the, in, the, in the way that a system of legitimations that supported a certain sort of politics had collapsed. And yet, it seems the vast majority of people um, whose job is to write about the, about, um, the political world, don't, they don't seem to appreciate that people don't believe a whole set of things about what makes sense economically anymore. Um, the idea that there's... Sorry. No, I just apologise, I interrupted you. I was going to say, one of the things I would like to see, I mean, you mentioned that poll about public understanding of some key political issues. You know, I'd like to see a poll or a survey of these key decision makers and see what things they misunderstand. You know, so they need to be thinking about what, um, how their picture of the world um, is accurate and how, how they might correct that, you know. Right, um, so there's a very there's a very interesting poll done by the people at Positive Money where they asked a parliament like a, they surveyed parliamentarians about where they thought money came from, and seventy percent of those who answered got it wrong. Right? Did they say the magic money tree? They didn't think it was. They didn't think there was any such thing as a magic money tree. They thought that the government created all the money, um, yeah. and only three in ten knew that actually banks create most of the money in circulation. Um, That's higher than I thought. It is high. It is, um, and it. Are these people hiding away <laughs> these little uh, secret um, monetarists? <laughs> yes. I don't. I mean, it's interesting that they have so little um, impact on um, mainstream political coverage. I think you're not allowed to be the chancellor if you if you know where money comes from. I think it's probably the yeah. rule um, because you have to say things like. Uh, there's no such thing as a magic money tree without without yeah. smiling or or falling about with laughter. Um, You're supposed to leave uh, notes around saying that all the money's gone. That's sorry. right. Yeah, you've got to have like that a. Wasn't the chancellor? Was it? Who who left that note? I can't remember. It was. I think he was the chief section to the treasury or something. Like he was like he was quite high up in the treasury. Um, but yeah, you have to subscribe to the lump theory of money. Um, to uh, to get ahead, I think in in Westminster, and as you say. There's very little attention paid to the kinds of like massive failures to understand um, amongst our kind of leadership class, um, and this is you know this is an interesting feature I think of, of MPs more generally is they don't seem to think that their job is to understand things like how the economy works. Um, their job is to kind of emote on television about um, about things. Um, yeah, unconvincingly usually. Yeah, not do it very, not do it terribly well, but but somehow kind of to impersonate some sort of um, strand of sentiment. Um, okay, well, look, I mean, we could talk about um, we could talk about the election um, for ages, and we've actually talked about it for quite a while. So let's just um, let's move on quickly to talk about one of the elements in the. Conservative manifesto, which is obviously kind of a dead letter now. Right? They don't have much room for manoeuvre in Parliament. But it's an interesting historical document. Let's let's put it that way. So let's do a little bit of history. Yeah, let's talk a bit about what what a um, uh, a majority Conservative government might have done um, about the media in 2017 had it had its way. Now, in the manifesto, it it made gestures towards something called a digital charter. The Digital Charter was going to be a, a whole set of measures um, that would bring sanity and order to the online public sphere. 
Um, it was, and it, I, it's worth looking at the language used, um, if our listeners have a moment, to go and look up the digital charter, because it talks a lot about uh, the need to make the online space as orderly and safe as um, as the real world. So it's, a, it's an attempt to impose civility um, and you know moral stability, if you like, uh, on the online space. And it's also interesting in that they they flag up in their very impressionistic remarks on the the, the um, digital charter. They flag up the need to somehow pay content providers um, for their material. So what seems to be emerging is some kind of awareness that the business model underpinning newspapers in particular is falling apart and that somehow um, orderly public speech needs to be paid for by some means. Um, And they're, they're coming around to the idea that maybe Facebook, Google, the big media platforms or the big big digital platforms have to take responsibility for supporting um, an infrastructure of responsible content, content that's not extremist, content that's not um, uncivil. And and this is is important, it seems to me, because it opens up a a conversation for us to have uh, on the other side, on the left, about how we would take seriously this crisis in media funding and think about how we could deliver not media that simply replicates the old um, balance of power in the print media, but starts to make inroads into, um, as we were just discussing, areas of like profound elite ignorance about about political economy um, and starts to help uh, the public articulate itself um, much more effectively. So, um, what, you know, what are your thoughts about this this moment as we, uh, you know, as we look um, at the the collapse of uh, of the newspaper business model? Yeah. So the, this agenda, as you say, I mean, it seems to be an, an attempt, or seems to have been a sort of uh, suggestion that they might attempt to uh, build a more sort of viable political economy essentially around the existing institutions. So the the key moment that we're in seems to be uh, a fading of the existing um, media oligarch- oligarchies, which uh, I don't, we didn't really discuss this, but the, you know the, the apparent power, political power of the tabloids seems to be waning, their readership's declining, uh, the press, which has been you know the key centre of a, a official. Um, public speech, if you like, for much of the for the twentieth century, it's plainly been in decline for a long time, and we're seeing at the same time as that um, emergent, um, even more powerful um, companies, uh, which like uh, like Facebook and, and Google, and this looks to be an attempt to try and try and come to terms with that, and try and use the power of the state to first of all. Uh, look towards building a viable sort of political economy, but also to um, set the kind of framework for good citizenship. So there's two elements of it. I mean, there's there's a whole section about building a digital sort of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting bit at the beginning where they say that the UK is sort of the rules-based environment that has allowed um, innovation to, to prosper. So they say that 
It was it was Britain's for hundreds of years. Britain has determined the rules and formed the environment where new ideas, new technologies prosper. From financial markets to the steam train to human uh, embryology, the code of life itself. Right. So there's a sort of sense that um, that's kind of a liberal um, sort of uh, or or neoliberal sort of vision where. You know, the state sets the ter- the, the economic and um, constitutional terms for um, innovation and, and public discourse. And that, that seems to be what they're sort of um, gesturing towards. So I'm probably making it sound a little bit more um, intellectually impressive than, than it actually is. Um, so the Media Reform Coalition, for example, have, have talked about um, a levy on the big emergent media corporations and, and using that to push forward a more democratic um, reform agenda. So this will be something we can talk about um, in future podcasts. Uh, the other element of the, uh, the digital charter was this, this question of, um, of extremism, which is, a, is another aspect of the conservative political agenda, um, which was actually, you know, until recently was a sort of bipartisan political agenda, but it seems to be... Uh, increasingly questioned on, on the left, uh, the Labour Party now, um, around uh, fighting uh, extremist ideologies online. So there's been this sort of notion that uh, terrorism is caused uh, not by political conflict or by um, violence um, in the Middle East, which has ramifications elsewhere, but it's primarily a question of um, a lack of conformity to liberal British values. And one of the things that they've been doing is they've been having these discussions with uh, Facebook and Twitter and the rest of them, um, trying to get them to shut down terrorist sympathisers. But I mean, this is obviously part of a broader um, attempt by uh, by the British state to bring uh, this sort of emerging uh, media landscape into regulatory control. They've been quite explicit about that, I think. Yes, that's that's right. And it's I think there's an interesting sort of tie-up between... Um, political extremism, uh, and also um, a certain kind of a certain sort of lack of civility online as well. Um, there's this increasing um, focus on people who use social media to be abusive to people, um, and this is this is felt very keenly, I think, by um, politicians um, who are often subject to very intemperate attacks online. Um, but I think it I think the idea of a, an uncivil populace is very important because it creates a sense that that the regulation of public speech needs to happen outside or away from um, the uh, purview of the general public that we need to regulate as it were from above because we essentially have a mob um, that needs to be controlled. And so one of the one of the thing I think one of the ways in which I think Conservative and, and liberal ideas about the media um, uh, uh, actually shade into one another. Is this sense that um, there's a minority of people um, who are able and and fit to regulate public speech, and there's an argument about who those people are. So there's a slight difference in emphasis about whether it should be um, uh, property owners in the, in the form of you know business you know, um, media business proprietors. Um, or whether it should be academics and um, the great and the good. Uh, so there's a sort of there is a sort of intra elite argument about what constitutes, as it were, an aristocracy of speech. 
Um, but nevertheless, the idea that you might have a democracy of speech, um, that people in general might have some say over um, the content of the media that they consume, is, is actually anathema or, or is alien to, to, to both wings of that mainstream debate. And one of, one of the things I'd like to do over the next few months is, is, is to talk more about the ways in which uh, this emergent left might um, take seriously the opportunities for democratization um, that are imminent in, uh, in these digital platforms. It just seems self-evident to me uh, that if you're going to take money from private companies and use it to promote uh, the creation of media content, the decision-making body in that process should surely be the the population as a whole. Why why on earth would you simply try and recreate legacy media uh, in the online space, or as some liberal reformers want to do, recreate le- legacy media with slightly more emphasis on um, uh, on the liberal element or liberal end of the spectrum why wouldn't you um recognize that the distribution of public funds um is something for the public as a whole to have a an egalitarian say in i don't know whether whether this idea is is sort of outlandish or whether it's just blatantly obvious so this is hopefully i think something we'll we'll talk a, a bit more about over the coming months um just to add a point, which which may be an obvious one to this this discussion. I mean, the in the Conservatives' manifesto, they said clearly that they wouldn't implement the second stage of the Leveson inquiry. Um, uh, Labour said that they would, so they're very explicit about protecting the so-called freedom of the press, which is essentially, you know. Uh, the sun's right to say whatever it wants, no matter how offensive to civility or um, those sort of values to which they're alluding. Whilst at the same time, as you say, trying to regulate behaviour and uh, conduct amongst the more or you know the masses or whatever um, whatever term you want to use. So you know they're, they're protecting legacy media. They're not um, obviously not thinking about democratisation, but they're also preserving these institutions which I mean quite plainly don't meet <laughs> meet these kind of uh, standards of public stability no quite quite uh, and you can be as you can be as uncivil as you like if you've got enough money seems to be um, the general principle the other thing to say about this this, this difference between uh, labor and conservative positions at the moment is that um, the labor manifesto commits to a constitutional convention um, which which is Build as a, a sort of um, a wide-ranging look at, at, at how power works in the UK. Um, the, there was lim- limited kind of coverage about about the convention proposals in the election, but I think it's a really important uh, opportunity again for the left to think more broadly about the ways in which the rules of the game are set up. Um, it's not been prominent in constitutional thought in this country to think about how the media system works. Um, but I think serious, a serious constitutional reappraisal now needs to take on board um, the operations of the communication system. They are integral to the state. 
Um, and yet we have tended to think of them as being just another business sector or maybe an arm's length public broadcaster with its own uh, slightly eccentric rules about balance. We haven't really thought about what it means in the modern era to, uh, to, to create a political economy of communications and how that has major implications for how politics works, um, what's seen as being politically possible, realistic, and so on. So again, to bring it back briefly to, to the election, there is a sense that the new communication forms are opening up new spaces of political possibility. Uh, one of our priorities, it seems to me, as, a, 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 as, as reformers or as people who want to, to change things for the better, is to think about how we, uh, how we protect these emerging spaces um, and make them uh, more durable in the face of what will be um, a very concerted backlash by property, I think, against them. Um, and that brings us, I think, to the, to the last thing which, which I wanted to ch chat with you about today, which is many of our listeners would have noticed that when you go on the BBC's website, it asks, for, it asks a lot of impertinent questions about who you are and what your email address is. Um, and it's moving into a, um, what seems to be a kind of um, compulsory sign-up model. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you think that implies for the BBC um, and as a sort of prelude for, for our conversation next week, what, what we might make of the BBC um, uh, in the years ahead. So talk to me a bit about Sign Up and, and what you think it, um, it implies for the BBC now. Yeah, so we're going to be talking a lot about the BBC, so this is just a start. If people might have noticed, as you say, that if you watched the iPlayer um, for a while, they've been asking you to sign in, and there's been a little option that says, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. You can't do it later anymore. You have to do it now, which means that uh, this follows a, a shutting down of what was called a loophole, whereby for, for many years you could watch the iPlayer if you didn't have a television license. So that's changed now. The license fee... Um, now covers the BBC's online broadcast content for its, its player, and you need to um, sign up to, to use that. So this really represents uh, a first step um, towards uh, the BBC acting more like a subscription service where you have to sign in in order to view its content. So it's a restriction on the use of its programming, um, and I think it's, it's, it's clearly a step away from the, uh, the model of, on the, which the BBC has been based, which has been universal access. Now, at the, so at this stage, um, if you don't have a television license, then you're now not able to access these particular programmes. Of course, that was the case before. The BBC was a, um, a compulsory tax. But what this lays the groundwork for will be a situation where you can choose uh, whether or not you will want to access BBC services just in the same way as you can choose if you want to sign up to these various um, private sector providers like uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime or, or Sky and the rest of them. So it seems like this needs to be understood in the context of, first of all, the shift away from, from broadcast media. I mean, the, the television's going. I mean, that, that's clear, even if people at the BBC don't seem to have quite cottoned on to this fact. Um, and also... So first of all, it represents uh, a shift online, but it, it, it looks to be a, clearly a step towards the BBC becoming 
um, essentially a publicly owned, not-for-profit provider of uh, voluntary subscription content. I mean, that's what it seems to be a, a clear step towards. Now, what kind of future might that mean for the BBC? I mean, first of all, the BBC is, I mean, it is a big, a relatively big media player, right? So it's got um, just under four billion pounds of, uh, of annual revenue, um, and Netflix has uh, seven billion, right? Yeah. Uh, Amazon's huge. I mean, it's 136 billion, but I mean, a lot of that is, you know, very different, um, based around very different business model, obviously. I mean, so, uh, so it, it, it can try and make a state for that environment. And this needs to be put in the context of the proposal that Hall made, um, which was then taken up by the Conservative government, was for the BBC's programming um, commissioning process to be fully privatised, but also for BBC program making to be able to sell its programmes to other providers. So basically, this is another step towards the BBC being integrated into the market, um, which has been the direction of travel of the BBC since the 1980s. What will happen to it? I mean, I think it, it seems to me that um, as the BBC, if, if the BBC becomes a voluntary service, which is, it, which is the argument that it's eventually going to lose if it goes down this, this direction, you know, the, the capacity to have to, to use public funds as opposed to the funds of your subscribers means that its revenue will decline very steeply. Um, it means that the edge of the other private sector providers will, will increase. And the BBC will also find itself uh, very difficult to be able to compete in the market in which it's now the whole Lord Tall, the Director General, has now placed it. Right? So the BBC now has to compete fully for all of its programming and commissioning processes. So as its revenue declines, as this market gets, gets more competitive, and like the previous media markets, heavily dependent upon capital investment and, uh, and, uh, and market share, I think the BBC is basically... Um, signing its own death warrant if it wants to go down this um, particular road. Um, and the, the trajectory of, uh, of public media um, over the last three decades has been one where it's been gradually eclipsed by these um, private sector providers. That said, I think the sign-up model does have potential if the funding revenue is, uh, is, is kept public the, the sign-in model does have the potential, at least, for the sort of possibilities for media democratisation, um, which we've kind of alluded to already and we're going to be discussing more in the podcast, because it, it does allow a sort of technological digital interface, um, which should allow for much more interaction with um, viewers, listeners, and, uh, and readers as well. Right, so I think there's a really interesting question here, isn't there, about you know what is the BBC for? Um, the the internal view of the BBC seems to be that the BBC is there to um, produce cultural content um, to, as it were, knit the nation together. And I suppose that the the Mandarin class of the BBC are trying to find a way of continuing with that model of the BBC uh, into the digital future. And if they see themselves as a um, uh, as a as a provider, as you say, like a, a sort of Netflix with a with you know certain advantages in terms of a huge archive and so on, um, then they can carry on doing what they like doing, which is making programs. Um, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we want the BBC to be? Um, and if we think that actually the BBC is a uh, is a is a kind of in a way a useful resource if you wanted to create um, a, a fully 
articulate body politic, right? If you wanted to create a nation that understood itself and that could understand itself in real time, um, then having a uh, having a, uh, a universal provider of uh, of information and a universal provider of, of relevant technologies would be a really interesting and useful pl- resource to have. Um, so you could imagine a, a sign-up model where, as you say, you, we could interact with with our fellow citizens um, in ways that may be anonymous. They may be um, uh, they may not be. They may they, they could be any n- number of ways that we could interact, as it were, um, uh, to to describe public opinion to itself um, over time and explore things um, together that we wanted to understand more clearly. And this is a this is a model I think of media provision that's much closer to what the technology can achieve than the old model, which was where you had a, an enlightened elite in control of broadcast technology. Who would, as it were, they would emit light. The BBC was a sun uh, that illuminated the public sphere, um, and that's really a, a, that's there's a kind of coincidence, it seems to me, of British late imperial administrative culture and broadcast technology. Um, we now have a uh, a situation where you have a much more networked population, a population that's much more familiar with the idea of communication between equals and we have a technology that that can underpin that Um, so as you say we're going to talk a lot more about the BBC um, over the coming weeks and months Uh, it is the the key um, media institution in this country still it's impossible I think to understand UK media without understanding the BBC Um, but I think we've been uh, we've been talking now for just under 50 minutes and I think um, we've made a good stab at introducing some of some of the main themes uh, of the podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking much more, uh, as I said at the beginning, about about the relationship between politics and the media, and about how politics plays out within the media space as well. This has been the Media Democracy Podcast, brought to you by the Media Fund, where the media revolution is happening now. Find out more at themediafund.org. Tom and I will be back next week with a special on the BBC and the liberal media. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at Media Democrat. Let us know what you think, ask us questions, make suggestions, and we'll look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thanks for joining us.